Hello and welcome to Speaking to the Dead, the podcast where we explore the writings of the long dead and figure out what they say to us today. I'm Will Stafford, postdoctoral researcher at the Institute of Philosophy of the Czech Academy of Sciences. And I'm Doug Rooney, lecturer in English Language and Literature at the Capital University of Economics and Business in Beijing. And joining us today are the author and translator, two separate people, of the Treaty of Waitangi. Victoria, Queen of England, in her kind thoughtfulness to the chiefs of New Zealand and her desire to preserve Tulum, their chieftainness and their right to land, and that peace may always be kept with them in quietness. She has thought it a right thing that a chief should be sent here as negotiator with the Maoris of New Zealand, that the Maoris of New Zealand may consent to the government of the Queen over all parts of this land and the islands because there are many people of her tribe who have settled on this land and are coming hither. Now the queen is desirous to establish the government, that evil may not come to the Maoris and the Europeans who are living without law. Now the queen has been pleased to send me William Hobson, a captain in the Royal Navy, to be governor for all the places of New Zealand, and he give forth to the chiefs of the Assembly of New Zealand and other chiefs the law spoken here. The first, the chief of the assemblies, and all the chiefs who have not joined in that assembly give up entirely to the Queen of England forever all the government of their lands. So what we just heard there was an extract from the 1840 Treaty of Waitangi, which is the treaty that establishes uh, New Zealand as a crown colony within the British Empire. Now, what we heard there was the, the literal tra translation of the Maori version of the treaty, because quite interestingly, the Treaty of Waitangi is one of the first um, international treaties, uh, international treaties written between an indigenous group and a, and a Western power that is dual translated. So there is an English version and a Maori version. So what are your impre first impressions, Will, of the bits we've heard of the treaty? My first impression is, well, I have two first impressions. The first is, it's the, the beginning bit we read makes it not clear at all why anyone would be interested in uh, letting the Queen of England forever govern all their lands. It seems like uh, kind of an uneven uh, document at the moment, but I've heard that this is much uh, more... Uh, I don't know what the right word is. It's not as bad as what was going on in a lot of other treaties, right? Yeah, yeah. You can have better and still bad, right? Sure, yeah. So compare this, for instance, to how, I don't know, indigenous groups within the Americas have been treated <laughs> in generations prior, the, or even the contemporaneous treatment of the Aborigines in, in Australia. Like, 1840, the previous generation, the British had committed a genocide against Aboriginal groups, and here they're writing a treaty. So yeah, you're right. It, compared to that, it's, it's a bit better. The, the other thing that's interesting about it is, as you said, this is the, the English translation of the, of the Maori rendering of the treaty, is, is that uh, the language isn't quite what you would expect in uh, a very formal legal document in term well I mean a lot of it is right uh, but the use of the term chief to refer to William Hobson for example is is 
not what I would expect in a treaty from that period. Yeah, I um, I'm always surprised with the Treaty of Waitangi because you're right, uh, Queen Victoria is really, or Queen Victoria's government is really listing a series of demands, but they do seem to be going to some effort to try and make it as acceptable to the Maoris as they feel they can go, right? So it's written in Maori. Um, it's it's trying to um, trying to fix terms that would not really apply to William Hobson or the Queen into kind of a Maori understanding of how the world works. So I, I think it's for 1840, it kind of surprises me to the length of which these, these people are trying to go. So uh, how valuable that is is questionable when we have the absolutely outrageous part, which is all the chiefs assembled and all the chiefs who have not joined in the assembly give up all of their land forever. Yes. Like that is some outrageous bullshit going on there. Well, this is part of a um, concerted effort by the British government because at this point, the French have been appearing off the coast of New Zealand. And as always, the English are paranoid about what the French are doing. And the British government is terrified that France is about to annex what we now call New Zealand. And so they send uh, this, this guy, William, Captain William Hobson, down to New Zealand with essentially the orders, make do whatever you can, make sure that New Zealand becomes a crown colony because we don't want the French to get it. So, yeah, so when they're saying all those assembled and all those not assembled, it's because they're like going, well, we don't care. We just need you. We need some people to agree to this so that we can say, yeah, you're now part of a crown colony. So, so in a way, kind of the, the there's a, an element of bad faith in the treaty in, you know, uh, that the British are really interested in uh, competing against the French and the the people of New Zealand are kind of being dragged into that conflict. Yeah, because it's it's part of a, a longer strategy in the part of the British. So um, a couple of years earlier, in the mid-1930s, uh, the British resident in New Zealand, James Busby, had signed a declaration of independence for the, the Maori chiefs in the North Island, creating a confederation. Um, and this declaration of independence was, again, part of this effort by the British to try and dissuade the French from annexing New Zealand. So this is this treaty is yet another step in this process where the British are going, dear God, the French are nearby, stop them somehow. And yeah, you're right. I think this is very much more of a concern for the British than it is for the Maori chiefs. And, and this, uh, this William Hobson, who I guess, so... Queen Victoria didn't write this document, right? Presumably this is William Hobson declaring himself governor. Is, is that right? Yes. So William Hobson had been sent out by the government of the period, by Queen Victoria's government, with the orders to go and make uh, the, the crown, uh, New Zealand a crown colony. But he was given quite a bit of latitude into what to write in the treaty. So the, the treaty we heard from, he did not finish until the day before the assembly he mentions in the treaty. So really up very much up until the last moment, William Hobson is writing this treaty. So yeah, you're right. Given how late he writes the treaty, Queen Victoria did not read this treaty before it was, before it was shown uh, to, to the assembled Maori. 
And 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 you say like it took him up until that uh, the day to write it. Is that because he was trying to become informed about what would be acceptable? Because he was trying to become informed about what would trick people, or is it just because he was a massive procrastinator? And and who was he talking to? Do we know? William Hobson does take advice. So when he lands in New Zealand, he takes advice from the Christian Missionary Society, who are this group who have been in the North Island for some decades by that point. Many of them can speak Maori. Uh, many of them are uh, known to the Maori chieftains. Um, it seems that he did have some drafts that he had written on the way there to New Zealand, but he doesn't write his final version until he gets to New Zealand, he hears advice from the Christian Mission Society, and then the night before the big meeting is meant to happen, he finally completes the final draft of the treaty. So he's talking to Europeans who have uh, come on missionary attempts. He's not talking to any Maori chiefs or other uh, Maori people who maybe learned English off the missionaries or were being translated by the missionaries. Is that right? Yeah. So he is speaking almost exclusively to uh, Christian missionaries or to, if not Christian missionaries, he may have spoken to some businessmen, um, again, white English businessmen who were around in New Zealand at that time. But yeah, he's talking almost exclusively to the church. And so his version of the treaty, the version he's trying to, to get pushed through, is being uh, edited to reflect the concerns and beliefs of the, the missionaries. Yeah. So I think William Hobson, with his version of the treaty, is trying to triangulate the concerns of the British government, the concerns of the local Christian community, the local business community, um, and also the, the foreign policy interests of the British government when it comes to the French. There's, there's something I find so completely like mind-blowing, but it's totally normal throughout history, is that he's trying, he's in a he's in a foreign country, uh, or he, he's in a, a foreign territories, and he wants to get people on board and sign this treaty. And he doesn't talk to anyone. He wants to sign it, um, it, it you know, and but it's completely normal at this time because people had uh, all kinds of beliefs about who was worth talking to and who wasn't. But nowadays, right, I mean, I guess it probably happens nowadays, too, but it kind of boggles the mind that you would you would not be like, should we talk to some of the people we want to sign this before we. Yeah, because it, <laughs> it's interesting it. because. The Maoris and Hobson do have a discussion, but only after he has written the treaty, right? So they get the treaty, they translate it into Maori, they have a big meeting where they gather together some 40-odd uh, different Maori chiefs to discuss the treaty. But as you say, it's not a discussion of what should be in the treaty, it's a discussion of whether you should sign it or not which does seem to be very, very, like, you can't imagine an international negotiation between, say, the British and the French, in which the British show up and say, look, we've already got this treaty, do you want to sign it or not? No, it would be a negotiation, right? And that's not happening here. I believe this was Boris Johnson's Brexit strategy. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, no, I, that is, it, it is interesting that the, uh, 
it sounds very one-sided and and then when it does become a discussion it's not about how should it be it's about are you on board or are you not and by the way it doesn't matter if you're not on board because those not assembled have also given up their land yeah and it's telling as well that um of the 540 signatures that's quite a big chunk of uh, the maori chiefs who have signed up to the confederation but not all of them and also there are a hell of a lot of Maori chiefs who did not sign up to that confederation. So most of the signatures are from the North Island of New Zealand, but it's just taken as fact that the South Island chieftains have also agreed to this, regardless of the fact that none of them were there at the initial meeting. So you mentioned in the beginning that what we read is not the English version. It's not the one that Hobson wrote. It's rather the Maori version of the text. So how, how does it come about that there are two versions of the text? So it essentially comes about in a strange way because the, of the treatment of Australian Aborigines in part. So 1790s onward, the British arrive in Australia and they treat the Aborigines pretty abhorrently. And by the 1830s, 1840s, there is a section in um, a section in British society who think that the treatment of the Aborigines reflects badly on the British Empire. And so by the time you get to the Treaty of Waitangi, there is at least a section within the British establishment who feel that this Crown Colony has to happen differently from what the Australian Crown Colony experience was. And so there is this effort to try and make it so that the Maori can understand what's being said. So there's this feeling quite early on that the treaty should be translated into Maori um, so that the Maori can understand what they are signing. I see. And so who actually translates it? Is it translated by a, a native Maori speaker or is it translated by a missionary? I'll give you one guess. Yeah, it's translated by a missionary, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so it's translated by the head of the Christian Mission Society at the time, one Reverend Henry Williams. Reverend Henry Williams um, is this guy born in 1792. He wasn't always destined for, um, for religious orders. He actually served his youth mostly in the Royal Navy during the Napoleonic Wars. He comes out of that, and it isn't until about the 1820s that he becomes ordained in the Church of England. Um, he's in New Zealand from August 1823. So by the time 1840, he's actually been in New Zealand for a number of years. Um, the reason he is chosen is because by this point, he is by all accounts fluent in Maori. For instance, his sermons on a Sunday are often in Maori. Um, he has also translated things before. So he's translated the Declaration of Independence I talked about earlier in the episode. He's also translated parts of the Bible. He's translated Anglican devotional text into Maori. So he, if you're going to pick a white guy, he is the logical choice of the man who should translate the treaty. And does he translate it word for word? Uh, would we say it's an accurate translation now? So even at the time, there were some people who who accused him of not translating it accurately. Like, so within his own lifetime, people were accusing him of having not uh, translated the treaty accurately. So there is a reason why most modern um, scholars Will, uh, will use the literal translation of the Maori and not the original English, because there is a feeling. So I do not know any Maori, so I am not an expert on this. I am not an expert to opine. But from what I've read, if you can read Maori, 
the Maori text and the English text are very, very different. So I think to demonstrate this, I want to read the first clause from the Maori text that we've already heard, and then I'll read for you the first clause from the English text, and I think that'll give an idea of how different these translations are. So to remind you, the first clause of the Maori text is, the chiefs of the assembly and all the chiefs who have not joined the assembly give up entirely to the Queen of England forever all the government of their lands. So that's the literal translation of the Maori text. Mm -hmm. Now, this is the first article in the English text. The chief of the confederation of the United Tribes of New Zealand and the separate and independent chiefs who have not become members of the confederation see to Her Majesty the Queen of England absolutely and without reservation all the rights and powers of sovereignty which the said confederation or individual chiefs respectively exercise or possess or may be supposed to exercise or to possess over the respective territories as the sole sovereigns thereof. So that's very different from saying, well, you can be the government to saying we have no sovereign power over the land. Yeah, definitely. And this is the contention of Henry Williams's translation, which is that it does not seem that for the Maoris who were signing it, it was clear that they were giving up sovereignty. And here's an interest. So we're talking about the the. There's the English version and the translation. And you might go, well, one's the translation and translations are derivative on the original text. But that's not really true in this case, because what we have here is a treaty. And a treaty isn't like a novel or uh, all the other texts we've looked at in earlier episodes, which only have communicative intent, intent, right? If I write a storybook or a factual book my aim is to put down information and pass it on to you and if it was translated and it didn't quite say what I wanted to say well then it's kind of a mistranslation but a treaty is an agreement between two people that has uh, what a friend of mine calls normative magic okay right it it makes things real in the world the signing of this treaty created new zealand as a crown dependency yeah yeah it, it's a it's a it's a, a text but it's also an action it it kind of uh punches above its weight and so when people signed the maori copy that said something different from the english copy that was what they were putting out that was the act that was being instantiated in the world, as it were. Yeah, and now under international law, um, we have it that the indigenous language version of a treaty always takes precedent if there are differences between it and the, the English or, or whatever other language it happens to be in. Then in 1840, that was not a consideration, right? When, they, when the Maori are signing it, you're right, they think they are enacting this Maori text, but the British state, as far as they're concerned, the Maori have agreed to the English version of the text, even although the Maori, the vast majority of the Maori chiefs, did not have access to the English text. The British state comes off on this sounding like they're just scam artists, like, like violent, angry scam artists. I suppose that makes them a mob, right? Um, <laughs> uh, because they, they've essentially shown up, given people a text to sign, wherein the signing of the text is kind of the saying, this is what's happening. We're making this country under these conditions. And then they've gone, nah, mate, this one. You didn't sign it. You didn't read it. But uh, 
we have bigger guns and so we're going to do it our way. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, so that's one interpretation of what Henry Williams' role in this is, right? So there is definitely a historiographic school of thought that says Henry Williams is a scam artist and he's trying to scam the Maori into doing something that would be politically beneficial for him and for the Christian mission within New Zealand. Um, and then the other interpretation of this is that Henry Williams is just a bad translator. So oh, no. in his defence, yeah, yeah. So in his defence, he was given this treaty at 4pm the morning before it was due to, to be given to the Maori chiefs. So he was given a very small window in which to translate. It's not a particularly long treaty, but still translating a legal document is usually meant to take more than 12 hours. So yeah. he's given this very small window. Um, so the charitable interpretation of what's happened here is Henry Williams was given far too short a period of time to translate it in, and that at that time, ideas and concepts like sovereignty or like private, um, private property were kind of difficult to translate into Maori at the best of times. And because of the time delays, he does a, a, a bad job of, of translating it. So I, I know there's a saying, what, don't attribute to malice what can be attributed to incompetency. But I, I suppose even if Henry Williams, we have too many Williams on this episode, even if Henry Williams was just an incompetent translator, you have to wonder if the, the other people involved must have at some point become aware that there was a, a mistranslation issue and, and they just went, well, tough. We're, you know, like we're we're not going to address this. This doesn't concern us. We don't we don't feel bound to the mistranslation. We think that other people suffering from the mistranslation, even though, right, really, uh, you have two people signing a contract. It should be kind of on equal terms. The the Queen Victoria should be uh, just as liable. Yeah, So, and I think, like, it says something about the man, the, the generous interpretation of him is he was really bad at his job. Right, and really bad. Like, the difference between the first clause that you read out and the English one, like, it just sounds... It, it, like, if, if he's not just incompetent, he's, like, radically incompetent because he translated like an entire sentence just with the word government. Yeah, and it should be said as well that Henry Williams just wasn't the translator of the treaty. Hobson could speak no Maori. And so during the day, he would translate on behalf of government officials to the Maori. So he wasn't just translating the treaty. And as far as we can tell, at no point on the day of the discussion of the treaty or in the subsequent discussions that happened elsewhere in, in New Zealand, did he ever clarify his position? So at no point did he say, hands up here, guys, that was kind of too short a period for me. He would insist for, for most of the rest of his life that the translation was good. So he is not saying, oh, I, I cocked up here, boys. He is insistent at the meeting and later that this is a good translation, you can believe me. And there is one record of one of the, the other white people who were at the meeting, that at least one businessman got up on the time of the meeting and called him out and said, you're mistranslating what he said. 
Um, but this was kind of like, no, no, that's 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 not a problem at the time. Oh, wow. So even at the time, there's kind of a discussion about how accurate his translation is. But at no point does Henry Williams say, yeah, hands up here. I'm struggling with this translation. So even if we say he's incompetent at his job, we have to say, well, yeah, OK, but he didn't own up to that. So he is culpable yeah. even then. Right, right. right. So he so in some ways. Whatever the situation is, he's a bad actor. It's just not clear if he purposely did it or if he just, you know, acted like some kind of narcissist who wouldn't let his uh, ego be harmed, even if uh, he was doing great damage. Yeah, and there are reasons, I think, to think that Henry Williams wasn't incompetent because... He was not a neutral party in the translation of the treaty. No. He is a British subject um, who is part of the British Christian Mission Society who would benefit from New Zealand becoming a crown colony. For instance, we know that the Archbishop of Australia at the time was lobbying for it to become a crown colony. It was a policy of the church to support this idea of it being a crown colony. Right. And it's interesting if if you if you are a bad translator, you would expect that some parts of the text would uh, would uh, kind of undersell the British involvement and other parts would oversell it if he was just incompetent, if he just didn't know how to use the Maori words properly. But the entire treaty paints as essentially makes the English version more palatable, which is exactly yeah, what William Hobson was sent there to do. I don't know. I, I, uh, I'm all for uh, believing that people who think they speak a language are actually <laughs> not as competent in it <laughs> as they believe, but it just seems a bit too perfect that uh, this worked out so well for the British government's interest in the matter. Well, and also um, one of the other bits of damning information that has come up in the 21st century reappraisal of the role of Henry Williams is that when you look at his earlier translations, in the Declaration of Independence also has the word sovereignty in it, and he uses a different word. Mm. So what this entire debate hinges on is the he uses a word to mean it, that he he says means sovereign to translate this word sovereign that translates better into governance. So it's the, the Maori word for governor, right? Um, whereas there is an argument that in an earlier treaty in the Declaration of Independence, he used a different word that Maori scholars say would be a better fit for the concept of sovereignty. And if this is true, it does, at least it provides circumstantial evidence of the fact that he has made a knowing choice to mistranslate this word mm -hmm. to try and make it more palatable to the Maori audience. Mm -hmm. And and so uh, I, I'm, I'm looking here at the, the debate that happened for the signing and we, and we see things like uh, uh, Rewa, who's a Catholic chief, says, the Maori people don't want a governor. We aren't European. It's true that we've sold some of our land, but this country is ours. We chiefs govern the, this land of our ancestors. And then it seems that uh, other chiefs that were Protestant, such as Honi Heke, say, Governor, you should stay with us and be like a father. If you go away, the French or the rum sellers will take us Maori over. 
How can we know what the future will bring? If you stay, we'll be all as one with you and the missionaries. So it sounds like when it comes to the signing of this thing, there's some kind of religious divide where people who are on the Protestant side, which is the same side that Henry Williams was on, right? He's an Anglican minister. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, are more in favour of it. What effect did having Henry Williams as the translator and having him there have on the signing of this treaty? Do we know? Yes, we do know. So Henry Williams, as I say, had been in New Zealand for quite a long time by that point, right? He'd been there since 1823. Um, and he was known to the Maori chiefs, especially those Protestant Maori chiefs. In fact, he had a reputation as a peacemaker between different Maori chiefs. Now, in recent years, there's been a bit of a reappraisal. So in his own time and into the 20th century, there was this idea that Henry Williams was beloved by the Maori. There's been a bit of a reappraisal because we don't actually have any Maori texts saying this. So within the European community, he was considered called, quote, the father of the Maori, end quote. Mm -hmm. How widespread that feeling was within the Maori, we don't know. It's possible he was beloved. It's possible uh, much less so that that was a, a, an outsider's perspective of this. What we do know, though, is that Henry Williams does seem to have been at least respected within the Maori. So one of the things he did when he first arrived as head of the Christian Mission Society was try and put an end to the trading guns, for instance. So he, he, prior to him, the, the church was involved in the trade of guns. He puts an end to that. He also makes an effort um, to, to ensure that the Anglican priesthood can speak Maori and understand Maori culture to a certain extent. It has to be said that it was a very paternalistic idea, right? So the, he definitely never leaves this Victorian mindset of I know best as the white guy. But he does make effort to try and understand where Maori are coming from. So his position in the treaty there on the day interpreting it for the Maori did have an effect, right? It must have had an effect because here is someone who is debatable to what extent, but does have a name within the Maori community. So here you have someone who is in uh, at least some position of trust, right? He's not a stranger coming in, uh, you know, and if you have a built up relationship with someone, you kind of part of that is taking their word for things. Otherwise, you don't really have a relationship with the person. So he comes in, he hands off this mistranslation uh, of the English, and then he stands there and defends it. Uh, that surely must have influenced the number of people who signed the treaty. Yeah, I think it must have, because, um, as I've said, most Maori chiefs did not have access to the English text. So they're only way they could interpret it was read the Maori text and listening to Henry Williams's Maori orations about, about what the English text said. So he does provide this very, very important role in the mediation of the meaning between William Hobson and the Maori chiefs. And I suppose one interesting kind of point this brings up is, is the very nature of translation. Yeah. There's a lot of uh, philosophical ink, particularly in the, the mid-20th century, spilt on whether translation is really possible at all, particularly for such a kind of culturally embedded notion such as sovereignty, right? Which is... is of course, yeah. Uh, an idea, a, a social construct that had developed in Europe, that probably even if you'd gone back 300, 400 years, would have been hard to translate into 
old English. Yeah, and, and I think, like, importantly, I think it would have also have been hard to translate Maori concepts into English. But the important thing here is no one needed to because it was the British state that had all the power. Yeah. And I think often things we translate and how we translate them have a lot to do with the power dynamic. Yeah. I, I also, I I think we, we can say, oh, well, translation's, you know, hard and blah, blah, maybe it's not possible, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and I'm going to show a bit of my stripes in terms of my view of how language works. But you can explain the consequences of the language. Yeah, yeah. We can throw you off your land. Everyone's going to understand that. You can translate that. So even if you're like, well, we can't uh, translate sovereignty word for word, you're like, well, it's just going to have to be a longer document. Explain what the consequences are going to be in terms of um, things like, well, if you're, you're under British law, that means the British can execute you. Right. That's a consequence mm. that you don't really need to be able to translate the word sovereignty. Yeah. And I think also some of this is done in the discussions around the treaty. Right. So one of the reasons why the Maori were so receptive to the idea of having this treaty is because not particularly because they feared the French. It was because at the time there had been increasing migration from the Australian colony to New Zealand. And there was a problem because these Europeans were not party to Maori law, but nor were they under British law. And so you have this group of Europeans who had a reputation for lawlessness. So one of the big selling points for this that was made by Henry Williams and others was if we are a crown colony, we can do something about these lawless white business people in New Zealand. That's interesting. Because I guess the uh, they weren't asked either. No, no, no. And the business community in New Zealand at the time were actually quite uh, put out by the arrival of William Hobson. In fact, I read one historian who said that 1840 marks the high watermark for uh, church authority within New Zealand. Because it is this point that the group within New Zealand who are most interested in promoting the idea of Crown Colony is the church, mm -hmm. the business community aren't really that interested in it. And the Maori are interested in it only, only insofar as it protects them from Western interests. Mm -hmm. So I suppose if we were, were let's, if, if we're wrapping up, what kind of is the moral of this story of translation and treaties and uh, British intervention? So I'm going to tell you what my interpretation of the whole affair with Henry Williams and the Treaty of Waitangi is, and then you can tell me what you think of this interpretation. So we've had a bit of a debate here, like our, or I've, I've given you a bit of the debate here about whether Henry Williams was bad at his job or was he a bad actor. And my position on it is it actually doesn't matter whether he was bad at his job or he was a bad actor. Henry Williams and William Hobson didn't want to harm the Maori, but it was very clear that both men thought they knew better than the native Maori groups. So even if Henry Williams and William Hobson are good actors and they have the best of intentions for the Maori, they aren't really interested in what the Maori have to say. They think that the Crown Colony is the best way forward for the Maori and for the British citizens in New Zealand. And that's what they're going to go for. And the discussion, as far as they're concerned, is do the Maori agree or do they disagree? And I think the moral of this story is that 
even if these people have good intentions, it's a really good example of the weakness of a kind of liberal paternalism. That is, here are these people who are coming in to a culture that is not their own and deciding, I know best. And the consequences of it are not good for the indigenous population. Right. So in some ways, William Hobson and and Henry Williams uh, kind of embody the fallacy that is the white man's burden. Yeah. They're to impose their views on others and they're not interested in listening. They didn't speak to the Maori when they read, wrote the treaty. They didn't. They just spoke to people afterwards. Yeah. And I think I have no doubt that in Henry Williams's mind, Henry Williams thinks he has the best interest of the Maori at heart. What I would say is it actually doesn't really matter what Henry Williams thought. Right. Uh, yes. Your intentions don't if- affect the impact of your actions. Exactly. Yeah. And I think the lesson we should take from this, because I think this attitude is still with us, right? We still have this attitude in Western ideas of development and who should be developed and how they should be developed. We still see the ideas that are kind of embodied by Henry Williams, which is these Western educated white men have some access to higher knowledge and when their interests or what they think are their interests clash with the native population, it's always the white man's uh, interests that seem to win out. Are you suggesting that no one actually needs an 18-year-old Gap Yara sent to help them out? <laughs> yes, yes, I, I, am suggest- I am suggesting this. But this is like a good example of this, right? That I would say that in many ways, the modern liberal idea of sending 18-year-old gap years out to Africa to build a toilet are essentially the intellectual heirs to people like Henry Williams, who is sent out by this British Christian Mission Society to, quote-unquote, develop the Maori and bring them to Christianity. So I, I have a uh, an ending question for you. So it may have been that in the 19th century, the Maori translation was ignored, despite that being the actual treaty that was signed. But we don't live in the 19th century anymore. Has there been any move or or progress or any attempts to make the Maori uh, version the official treaty? And has that had any impact in New Zealand? So in 1975, the New Zealand government set up the Treaty of Waitangi, Commission, which was to try and reassess and offer some restitution for the problems that came out of the Treaty of Waitangi. Um, So maybe I should say at this point that regardless of what Henry Williams' intention was, the treaty did not work out in the way that the Maori chiefs who signed it thought it was going to. I was taking that as as a given. (laughs) So one one of the selling points of the treaty was that it would prevent the devaluation of Maori land. So Westerners were coming in and buying Maori land at a fraction of their actual value. And one of the promises was the British Crown can regulate this. They did a very poor job of this. Um, And there was actually a war now called the New Zealand Wars after this period, in part because of this this thing about land. And in the 1970s, there was this move by the New Zealand government to try and make some restitution for what was seen as the the shortcomings of the Treaty of Waitangi. And this is why um, in recent years, it's become popular at least in New Zealand, to start calling this the Maori Magna Carta. It fills 
a, a similar space, it seems, within the New Zealand psyche as, say, the Maori Carta does not Magna Carta does it in England. Look, it sounds like it was uh, similarly as ineffective. <laughs> it does seem that way. Um, what I would say, though, is uh, I thought I would go on to New Zealand politics to kind of try and investigate this issue, because I don't know much about contemporary New Zealand politics. And I, and I would say that it does seem to be a bit of a culture war issue to this day in New Zealand, where depending what you think of Henry Williams and the Treaty of Waitangi and the subsequent treatment of the Maori tend to seem to peg you on whether you are on the right or the left. Okay. Well, so that's interesting. Maybe it's time to wrap it up, then, Doug. Yeah, definitely. Um, so actually, maybe it's worth asking you as the person who's heard this fresh as it was. So I've given my impression of the Treaty of Waitangi. After hearing it and having a little discussion about it, has anything changed from your initial impressions about it? I think that my takeaway from hearing what went on is that in some ways this was an attempt to for the British to get what they wanted uh, by any means possible, but they also didn't want to feel bad about themselves. I think also that I agree with you about how this reflects uh, a kind of liberal paternalism, uh, but also um, a kind of uh, mindset that other people would just be better off if they were like us, uh, which I think is a, a really dangerous mindset that still exists today. No, of course, no. And, and it's not just it still exists today, it's still widespread today. Yes, and, and by, as you said, people who who believe that they have the best of intentions. They just don't take other people's concerns seriously or, or listen to them. Yeah, or yeah, they don't listen to them or they're not interested in them. Researching the Treaty of Waitangi, I think it's kind of sad in a way that the politics of the Treaty of 1840s is still with us in a very real sense. Mm -hmm. um, that we're still having a lot of the same debates as the signatures and translators of the treaty were in the 1840s. Um, so I think that seems like a good place to, to wrap up for today. Yes. Um, so next next episode, Will, what are, you, what are you talking to us about? We're going to talk about The Lion Man, which is the first example of imaginative art. It's a sculptor that's half lion, half man. Brilliant. So join us on the first Wednesday of next month to hear about The Lion Man. I look forward to it. Yeah, and we are actually on iTunes now, so please rate and review us there. Yeah, because it helps other people find the show. You can also follow us on Twitter at dead underscore speaking. So uh, I've been Will Stafford. And I've been Doug Rooney. And we'd like to thank Cormac Lynn for reading the script and James Stafford for the ad read. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thank you.